You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Welcome to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast. Uh, I am the producer of the show, Brandy Thomas, and I'm here with Carrie Bediet of Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Say hi, Carrie. Woohoo! Hi, Carrie. Woo-hoo. I mean, hi. It's <laughs> <laughs> following instructions. Yes. I am following instructions. You are very diligent. And then we've got Susan Hudson here from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. Hello. And then we've got Abby Evelyn from Nashville. Fertility hey, guys. Center. Hey, y'all. <laughs> hey, yeah, we covered that in a, a recent episode. So we're still, we're here in Vegas in front of these beautiful palm trees. I know that for Carrie, this is like just every day, but for me, this should be a vacation, but we're all working. Yeah, <laughs> working no, all the No weekend. palm trees in Nashville. Yeah, right. All there the ones are, in Texas are transplanted. Yeah. So. But they're becoming a more of an in thing. It's very weird. In the was, middle of central Texas, we're getting more and more palm trees. Yeah. We, we've like, gotten your armadillos from Texas. They've m- now migrated up to Tennessee. Uh, are, they they are they your speed yeah, bumps Yeah, oh, too? they're alive. Yeah, they, we see them a lot on the road. They're roadkill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're speed bumps. We call them Texas speed yeah, yeah. We I have them now. We don't have palm trees, though, but we do have armadillos. Do you guys have real grass lawns? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I was wondering about that grass out by the pool here at uh-huh. the hotel. I really actually wanted to touch it because I couldn't tell if it was like some sort of fancy turf grass or if no, it was fake. That, that was probably real. But if you go to anybody's <laughs> house, it's not real. Um, it is pretty much universally fake. Sometimes it's super cheap, like mini golf kind of fake. Sometimes it's a nicer fake where you can actually think for a half second, hey, that's real, until you realize you're in Vegas in the middle of August and nothing is alive. <laughs> <laughs> Which in, we actually, Amy and I had an interesting uh, conversation about that with our Uber driver yesterday. And he was saying that you the property taxes, you get a property tax Oh yeah, if you don't have grass. Like if you have... Because desert, you don't water? Yeah. Yeah, oh. desert landscaping or the xenoscaping um, is very much supported here because you use a whole a whole lot less water. And so our entire yard, we've got a little patch of green for the kids and the dog, and everything else is rocks. Really? Mm-hmm. That, that's great. The, that's becoming very that's popular sad, in Texas, actually. Too. No, but it's beautiful. See, that's the thing is some people consider rocks— a beautiful, but type but of you landscape. can do you can do a lot of interesting things now with rocks because they they use different sizes and shapes and you can and create colors. art patterns That's in true. your yard and and different things like that. I mean, I remember years ago when I lived in Temple, there literally was a yard that was full of white rock and. The entire yard was full of white rock, and it was like, hmm, this is the oddest thing I've ever seen. But now, I mean, in my neighborhood, we can have up to 60%, I think, of our yard xenoscaped so mm-hmm. that— um, No, xeriscaped. Xeriscaped. I kept wrong thinking xeno was the wrong word, and yeah. it is the wrong term. Zeriscaped. It is xeriscaping. Yes. Desertscaping. So, um, but you can make them really pretty using different combinations. Mm-hmm. So, Speaking of rocks— I saw some rocks recently. I have to tell you guys, I went on this um, trip with a scout group, and I volunteered because it was a female scout troop, and they needed some females to come along on the trip and um, to spend the night. And we spent the night in a cave in Tennessee. On purpose? On purpose. And so that was the part I was kind of a little bit kind of worried about because it just seemed weird to think about sleeping overnight in a cave. 
But as it turned out, the spelunking, which is the medical, or not the medical term, but the, <laughs> the climbing I term, I guess, a for medical term. <laughs> crawling around in a cave, wow, it was it was a little bit more than what I expected. It was pretty pretty intense. We had to climb up ladders. We had to crawl through really tiny openings. And if you were claustrophobic, you would have never made it. That, I, I could not. I've seen the movies, the, uh, what was it? 128 Hours, I think. Or that movie where he, the guy gets his arm stuck behind a rock and then has to cut his arm off. <gasps> oh, it's yeah. It's a true story, too. Oh, it is. No, no. He's, he's stuck there for like 128 hours or something crazy like that and then eventually just has to decide to take his little army knife. and. Uh-huh. The scariest part of this whole well. thing was an area <laughs> that, I kid you not, they called it the birth canal. And you had to crawl <sighs> in up to the left you had to rotate your body around. You had to put your hands through this little bitty hole and pull your body through the opening. Abby, you are giving me <laughs> chest pain. Oh, my god! So I have to say I was pretty proud of myself three and a half hours later to make it through this. I mean, it was just a constant course of climbing over or under or through something the whole three and a half hours. You must have been exhausted, too. It was exhausting. It was exhausting. Using, like, muscles in your body that you probably don't normally use. Oh, you're absolutely right. So sleeping in the cave was a piece of cake after that. (laughs) That was the easy part. (laughs) Did anyone else, like, did anyone struggle with it? Like, did, were there any? You know, actually, the group that I was with, they were pretty much outdoor explorers, and they were kind of, everybody was pretty gung-ho. I was surprised at how well everybody did. Well, it's also one of those situations, when you're in the middle of it, there's no turning back. That's right. There's nowhere to go but forward. forward. (laughs) You just just keep on going. Good point. Mm -hmm. So speaking of rocks, the rocks with which we are more familiar are testicles. (laughs) (laughs) That took a real left turn there. (laughs) Uncensored, you know, isn't that the name of our podcast, Uncensored? I appreciate the edginess of it. Yes, that is is true. We, uh, you guys are... Probably a lot more familiar with testicles than I am. Um, what does that mean exactly? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how. As I was saying it, as it was coming out of my mouth, I was like, this is getting weird. I mean, um, I understand we're in Vegas, but <laughs> we're not quite that kind of uh, podcast yet. So to be more clinical, you have to have eggs and you have to have sperm. And so that's what we're really going to talk about today is men and sperm production and how that plays a role in fertility. Right. And I I do appreciate the fact that this conversation started out about rocks and that transition into (laughs) testicles was beautiful. Um, Welcome. (laughs) So I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the male factor with infertility. Um, Why don't you guys all kind of just touch on what male infertility is? What are the signs of it? Let's not say touch on, please. (laughs) Sorry, I was kind of thinking that, and I didn't say it. (laughs) I have to be very careful with your phrasing about this to not get into uh, unintentionally edgy material. We probably shouldn't have. We've been recording all day. We shouldn't have saved this episode for the last one. We're all a little bit delirious, I think. Uh, No, but so, so what exactly, how often are men... Making sperm? Yes, or, well, the... The factor. Is how, how often do they contribute to the infertile factor? Right. Or not contribute, as the case may be. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So about 40, 40% of cases of infertility have some contributing male factor. So it's a it's a very, very important thing to look at. Um, oftentimes, we'll have a woman come in who's like, oh, well, we just need to check me out because 
my partners had children before, things like this. And, and, it, and it, it's important for us to get the entire picture without having the semen analysis, which is kind of the first basic test of a man's fertility. Uh, it's, it's really hard to know if there is a male factor or not. And the semen analysis is one of the easiest, least invasive tests that we can do for our patients. And so whenever you have a couple come to you for the male evaluation, that semen analysis is pretty easy to get. Now, logistically, he's got to kind of be prepared for it because one does not typically give a semen sample outside of the comforts of one's own home. But... Um, but it doesn't involve any needles or any major medical procedures to do it, which is really nice. Well, in terms of preparation, um, usually we tell our patients that we want them to abstain from ejaculation from two to five days. And if they're in that window, then we have collection rooms actually in our office in Nashville that are away from everybody else, and they can collect there privately. Um, And then basically it'll take us probably a day or two to get the results back. Um, The things we look for, there's a lot of different numbers when the sperm results come back. Um, We try try to go through that with our male patients, but really the main things, and and the other ladies here may want to chime in, but the things that we really look at are the count, which is usually kind of the concentration, the motility, and the volume. And all, all three of those things really contribute to a term we call total modal count, the number of actively moving sperm that can actually swim from... Um, the man to the to that or from the partner to the sperm, I can't talk to the egg, mm-hmm. <laughs> and ultimately help the patient get pregnant. Okay, so so I know. Have you guys ever had a patient just blatantly refuse to do a semen analysis? Occasionally, I think, you know, I I think we all being, have had that. Yeah, and it, it's it's unfortunate because our our patients want us to be able to give them answers and directions. And without his contribution, <laughs> um, it's it's we don't have the whole picture. Right. I, I always say that when we're doing the fertility evaluation, we're really putting a puzzle together. And when we have all the pieces of the puzzle, that's when we can best figure out what are going to be the best treatment options for that particular couple. And if we don't have that piece of information, I I honestly can't give the advice that I that. The patient is really wanting from me. So, if a man and a woman, or a man and any, if a couple comes mm-hmm. in to a fertility specialist, do you test both of them at the same time, or do you test one first, rule things out, and then test the other? I think generally we sort of. I mean, I can't speak for everybody else, but generally we like to test both male and female partners because you know either one of them could have an issue that would bear on or would kind of help contribute to what we recommend you know, as treatment at the end. So we have to know about the female and the male. So kind of you do those simultaneously, although with the woman, most of the things that we do are timed with her menstrual cycle. And so therefore we can't just immediately do those things when she comes into the office. Right. Okay. Most of our patients want answers yesterday. And so our goal is to try and get them those answers as quickly as they can. And so typically we're running everything simultaneously if possible. And another thing that we often see is that Occasionally, something is purely male factor. Occasionally, something is purely female factor. But most of the times, there's a little male factor. There's a little female factor. And that's how somebody ends up seeing somebody like us for fertility care. Okay. Gotcha. So so what about like age with, with male infertility? Does that 
contribute? Is that like, because I know with female, obviously it does. Is that a, a factor? So male age is not quite the same as female age when you're talking about impact and fertility. With females, you have a very clear decrease in the number of eggs as the woman gets older because she is born with so many, that is all she's going to have. And when they're gone, they're gone. With men, they're remaking sperm or they're making sperm all the time. And so every it takes 72 days to go through a complete cycle of sperm production. They're making sperm all the time. And so that's part of the reason why they could ejaculate every day and still have sperm always be present. Um, however, with age, we do start start to see a decrease in numbers. It is not quite as universal as with women. And so you can have a 55-year-old man who has no count or very minimal counts or none that are moving. And you can have a 55-year-old man who has a really a pretty normal count. There's also some impacts of other conditions like autism and schizophrenia that we start to see in increasing numbers as the age of the man increases. Hmm. However, also, it's not a guarantee. You can have plenty of children that are born who are just fine, um, and it's a harder thing to test for. So we're aware of it, but at this point, there's not a huge amount we can do about it. Right, and is there is there any—there's not really any testing you can do to determine whether or not the child is going to have autism or schizophrenia, right? There's no— Correct. There's no genetic test. Right. Correct, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so that—yeah, that I could see how that— makes it, it more difficult. It's just being aware that your child might be at an increased risk of having one of those conditions with time than necessarily your child will have this because most most of the children are going to be born and grow up completely normal. Right, right. Well, and so there's a lot of things we talked about, we've talked about in previous episodes about things that women can do to improve their fertility or their chances of conceiving. Are there like certain lifestyle changes for men that they can make if it is like a risk? It's interesting. It's pretty similar to women. So if men are underweight or overweight, they can have some of the same problems with sperm production that women can have with ovulating. So if they're obese, sometimes they tend to make more estrogen and that can negatively impact their their sperm numbers. Um, if they're smokers, you know, just like with women, that can impact their 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 ability to produce sperm or can negatively impact their sperm, I guess is a better way to say it. Also, their secondhand smoke can affect their partner as well. Um, and then, you know, also, you know, drug use and that sort of thing can be a problem as well. So many of the things that affect women also affect men negatively. And I would have to say, I think alcohol consumption can have a much bigger impact on sperm production. Obviously, we don't want a woman drinking excessively because of things like fetal alcohol syndrome. But I think we've all seen cases where gentlemen have come in with very poor sperm counts because of alcohol use as well. You know, and one other association too that I meant to mention, you know, in, you know, because many of our listeners may be from states where marijuana use has become, you know, legal. Legal. So therefore, you know, more people are probably smoking marijuana now, maybe than say 10 years ago, but that can negatively impact the shape of the sperm, the morphology of the sperm. And so, with the shape of the sperm, we just worry that maybe the sperm can't swim to the egg or it can't bind to and penetrate the egg. And so anytime a lifestyle change is made, um, it typically has to be something that's maintained for at least three months since it takes about three months to produce new sperm. So what about like Mountain Dew? Does <laughs> caffeine, caffeine makes it swim faster. Yeah. Really? Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay, what about if your cell phone is near 
You're, these are just things I've heard throughout my life that I'm like, I've always wondered about if they're true or not. Well, anything that heats the testes. So I think more like a computer. If a man has a computer sitting on his lap. That really can. That can heat the testes. Consistently. Consistently. Not just like, yeah. oh, I'm. Every now and then, yeah. Right. Or it, like standing next to the microwave isn't going to deplete. No. Okay. no. <laughs> whatever, whatever heat exposure has to be enough that it exposes the heat, keeps it hot enough to essentially. Raise the core temperature. Yes. And parboil the sperm. Right. Yeah, okay. and, and this is kind of off the wall, but when I ask men about this, anybody that likes to ride a bicycle a lot, particularly if they're training for like a triathlon or something like that, the heat from riding a bicycle can affect the male testes because the male testes are more exposed to the environmental temperatures, whereas women's eggs are in inside their body and more controlled by their core temperature. Men's testes can be impacted by the heat in the environment. Similarly, with hot tubs and saunas, most people are not going to be sitting in them long enough to actually do any harm. However, if you have someone who is a very consistent user for prolonged periods of times of uh, particularly hot tubs where their lower body is completely covered in really hot water, then they may not be doing themselves any favors there. What would you define as someone who's like a consistent, like every day not, for multiple hours? So not, not going into a hot tub because you're on vacation. But if you're a, I go into my hot tub every evening for 20 to 30 minutes, that's probably not a great thing for sperm while you're trying to conceive. Okay. Another thing I wanted to ask about too, we talked about how smoking impacts sperm count. What about vaping? Do you guys have research on that that shows the impact that it has on, on sperm yet? It depends what they're vaping because you can put all kinds of things in in those vaping tools, apparatuses. I, yeah. I don't even know what the right term the is. The chemicals that you... The chemicals that you can use. Sometimes it's tobacco. Sometimes it's marijuana. Sometimes you don't really know what's in it because a lot of them have additional flavors and who knows what else they have to put into it. And each manufacturer is a little bit different. And so what I typically tell people is if you would not hand it to a baby, hmm. don't hand it to yourself. To create a baby, you have to treat yourself like a baby. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I yeah, that's it. good. That's good. <laughs> Naps for everyone. <laughs> so, so if someone is thinking that they're struggling or they got a test done that shows that they're struggling with male infertility, what or what kind of testing is actually even available for? Are there over the counter tests that people can do? There are some over the counter tests. I would have to say that most of them are more do you have sperm or do you not have sperm? And that's not really giving you the information you need. And so I would recommend if you want to have a semen analysis, get a formal semen analysis through your reproductive endocrinologist or your OB-GYN may be able to order it or something along those lines. There's some other advanced testing. If for some reason your semen analysis doesn't look good, you may get some blood tests. We may do an additional type of sperm test looking at kind of the integrity of the DNA or the genetic material um, to see what may be the best ways for you to be able to conceive with your partner. Okay, gotcha. Can you self-order sperm tests? It depends on your state. So in Texas, um, individuals can actually order for themselves any lab test, which would include a semen analysis. So um, you can order it, but my recommendation would be if you are going to order something like that to follow up 
with a reproductive endocrinologist so that we can help explain to you what the different sperm parameters are. Because even if you may have something abnormal on your semen analysis, it doesn't mean you have bad sperm, okay? Um, most people have a little something, you know, off on a semen analysis, but there's still good enough sperm that should result in a baby. But that, that's why you kind of need that professional interpretation. Gotcha. One thing to consider about the semen analysis is that when we're looking at the three main factors of concentration, movement, and appearance, when one of those is abnormal, it's not a guarantee that you're infertile. It just increases the likelihood that there's a male factor there. So when you have one versus two versus all three factors that are abnormal, you're going somewhere from one to two times more likely to three to four times more likely to about 10 to 15 times more likely. So absent a finding of zero sperm or zero sperm moving, which in general is pretty rare. It I mean, is, yeah. We almost find, we almost always find something. Um, it, it's really helpful to have a, a professional who can go through those results with you because we can help you know when is it time to actually get seriously concerned versus, yeah, this is a, an addressable issue. Well, and the first concern too is if one of those numbers is abnormal or several of them, um, it probably the best place to go after us is to the urologist for just a general exam. We want to make sure first that if the count's abnormal, that there's not some bigger problem other than just infertility. Make you know, make sure that the man is healthy, and also do some blood work to make sure there's. Um, not things that we can do that will change the outcome. So we want to do blood testing to see if we can get at a reason why the sperm count is abnormal um, and then have them see the urologist just to make sure that there's, you know, nothing more significant. And then from there, we can decide based on what the sperm numbers look like, you know, is are there some treatments that we can do? And I don't know about urologists in your all's area, but sometimes our urologists will put men on Clomid, which is a uh -huh. fertility medicine. Yep. And, you know, then we can decide if we can go that route or if we have to do something, you know, more extreme like IVF, for example. Mm -hmm. We also will occasionally put men on um, more intense medications, similar to what we put our ladies on for IVF. And we'll use FSH and HCG to really bump up their numbers quickly just to see if we can get it. Because if that's the what we need to do in order to know, do we have to use a sperm donor versus can we get some production of his sperm? Then then we'll take a couple months and we'll see if we can try that. Um, the important thing to remember about all of this is that in the same way that embryos that don't look beautiful, that may have not passed the beauty contest, that doesn't make a bad baby. A bad sperm doesn't make a bad baby. Even if it's not the fastest swimmer, even if it has an abnormal appearance, it doesn't mean that the resulting child is going to have something abnormal about it, <laughs> which is an important thing to remember. And I think the good news, too, is, you know, we feel like men have to have several million sperm, you know, to get their partners pregnant the good old-fashioned way. But, you know, the good news is if their partner has, you know, if we do in vitro where we take the eggs out, if the partner has even, you know, eight or 10 eggs, we literally need eight or 10 sperm, not eight or 10 million, but literally eight or 10 sperm. Mm -hmm. So if the partner makes any sperm at all, then we still usually have the option of doing in vitro. It's really a remarkable reminder of how incredibly inefficient the human body is. <laughs> that is a good point. For, you know, for men to have to produce millions upon millions of sperm 
to then have a resulting maybe 20 to 25% chance of pregnancy, assuming that the female partner has an egg that's being released on time each month. It's just, it's a very inefficient system, completely from top to bottom. There's just all the puzzle pieces. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, good, because we are already overpopulated, kind of, the world. And if (laughs) it was more efficient, that might be a problem, (laughs) you know? So it's kind of like life's way of being like, okay, got to check all these boxes first. Good thing women only make one egg a month. Can you imagine if we made 10 or 12 eggs a month? Oh, my gosh. That would that would and be good. Yeah. The little sperm don't stop and ask for directions. That's right. <laughs> you know, yeah. most of them never make it anywhere close. <laughs> They're doing well, donuts in the parking lot. <laughs> Here's the question that I'm sure everyone wants to know: How often do does a couple need to have sex? Like, what is the optimal number of times that they need to have sex if they're trying to get pregnant naturally? Like, do you guys have a set number that you? I mean, about every other day is optimal around the window of. of <laughs> I'm sorry, just no way. But, but only for about, <laughs> over the course of maybe six days. But really, the most important part is the egg. The egg is really the limiting step. So if a man has sperm or a par- partner has sperm, you just want to make sure that you have sex right around the time when the egg is released, which is usually for a woman who has a period every 28 days usually around day 13 or 14 is about the time the egg is released. So for like that week, you should mm-hmm. probably do it. Right, not like right. Every week so you don't forever. have to every week of every month. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Like my husband's not going to, I'm not going to let him listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> not happening. <laughs> That's actually one of the things that people don't talk about very often is I can't tell you the number of males that I've had come into my office saying, when I asked them, do you have any difficulties with erection or ejaculation? They said, well, there's this pause and it's it's a loaded pause because usually the male and the female partner are looking at each other and he'll go, well, yeah. And it's it's because they're now having to have sex on demand and it's no longer fun and it's connection. It's stressful. It's very it's stressful. Work. Right. It is. It is. And and that's one reason, you know, I, I tell patients if they want to have intercourse more often, that's fine. But it's not absolutely necessary if your goal is pregnancy. And, and so, um, but it, it does take the fun out of it and it, it can put a big strain on relationships. And that's very common. And on that same note, I think we really don't, we think about fertility as being more of an emotional issue for women. But, I mean, I've had men cry in my office. I mean, they're sad, too. And I think we, in our society, we don't give them credit for having those same strong emotions about having children. And so I think we, we need to think about that when we talk about, you know, counseling with our female patients. I think it's it would it's really helpful for a lot of men, too, to have counseling to kind of talk about those issues. And, you know, getting back to what we said about having trouble collecting, one of the things that I've done when I know when a guy kind of admits that, gee, it may be difficult for me to collect at the right time and or, or have intercourse with my partner at the right time in the cycle. You know, sometimes I'll say, well, you know, one of the things that we can do is we can freeze your sperm for backup. So at a time completely away from when your partner is ovulating, you can come in and collect and we can just have that as insurance so that if the time when we really need the sperm, if you can't collect, we know we've got it. You don't have to worry about it. And a lot of times just knowing that that can be done mm-hmm. <laughs> takes the stress out of it. Right. So it really helps those men when they need to collect at a certain time in the cycle or have sex with their partner at a certain time. Okay, so it's less more of like, you have to do it right now, and it's, yeah, okay, so it, it takes There's that. a backup plan. Yeah. There's a backup yeah. plan, that's right. Are there are there any, like, supplements or anything? Because I know that it's kind of, we've talked a little bit in some other episodes that we have about, like, the dangers of using certain 
things that aren't regulated? Are there any supplements that are good? And are there any supplements that are bad for men who are trying to either get their sperm count up or just increase their chances? Most of the data on supplements, as is true with supplements everywhere, is kind of mixed. Um, They're not necessarily the most rigorous studies because of the inconsistencies of production of supplements and the lack of FDA oversight and and monitoring for those. But some of the papers that are out um, say that vitamin C, vitamin E, L-carnitine, N-acetylcysteine and CoQ10 are the ones that can make a difference. And what I oftentimes will do is just put my male patients on those if I have any concern about any male issue and then and then just see what happens because they're unlikely to cause any harm. Whether or not they cause a huge benefit is still, I think, unknown, but I'll take any little advantage I can get, especially on something where there's very little price to pay for it. As to things that could be harmful, the things that we probably see the most common that can be harmful supplement-wise are the pre-workout, pre-testosterone type of supplements or even testosterone supplementation. Um, the, The male body is very interesting that you actually have to have testosterone to produce sperm, but it has to be testosterone produced within the body. So you're talking like steroids, Correct. Correct. So when you see all these T centers or, you know, low T treatments, these men are getting um, testosterone gels, creams, injections, these different types of treatments. And that can actually shut down the part of the brain that stimulates the testes to produce the testosterone and can significantly decrease sperm parameters and sometimes permanently. Wow. That's Pretty sh- why that's crazy that those things are even on the market. <laughs> you know that's that's. Well, and I think a lot of um, people or physicians or a lot of centers think that you know, or men think that taking testosterone will make them more fertile, but in reality, you know, it's like Susan said, it really does the opposite. It really shuts off their sperm production. Mm-hmm. So, what are things like? What what's the treatment for male infertility? What kind of options if a man finds out that he's not producing sperm? What what are what options does he have? So we typically do testing to take a look at his hormone profile, FSH, LH, thyroid, those types of hormones to see what's going on. If all of those are normal, um, we talk about, okay, what other options do we have? Depending on how low the count is, sometimes we need to do genetic testing and determine a karyotype. Does he have the appropriate number of chromosomes? Does he have, is he a carrier for cystic fibrosis or is he affected by cystic fibrosis in a way that may not have shown up in his day-to-day overall life and health, um, but that is apparent in fertility. There are two um, ducts within the testicles that can be absent in those cases where there's no physical way for the sperm to get out. Um, And so there's quite a bit of testing that we can do. And it really depends on what the reason is. Some men don't have sperm because their hormones aren't producing it, so we help to supplement those hormones. Some men don't have sperm because there's not a viable connection between the testicles and the outside world. And so we have to do a testicular biopsy. And and it's really the urologist who are doing that. Um, One thing to keep in mind, though, is when we test men for sperm abnormalities, most people are not in the extreme, mm-hmm. okay? And so most men that have a fertility problem, it's a relatively 
mild problem. And in those cases, we can use what we call IUI or intrauterine insemination to um, really maximize that egg and sperm interaction when a man and a woman have intercourse, most sperm are lost in the vagina. It's just the way the human's, human body is made. But by doing the insemination, we get more good sperm where they need to be when they need to be there. And so that is generally probably one of our first lines for mild to moderate sperm abnormalities. As things progress, we end up needing to be more aggressive with treatments. And sometimes we end up needing to do things like IVF or the in vitro fertilization with ICSI. ICSI stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection, where essentially we inject the best looking sperm into each egg. And that provides a very high percentage of fertilization, thereby giving this couple a much higher chance of taking home a baby. Okay. Well, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually kind of transition here to something a little bit more uncomfortable. Uh, and that's talking to a man about needing to get checked. I think when it comes to fertility, it is generally dependent on, or it's, it's perceived as being dependent on the woman. I think there's more of the, most of society expects that it is, if there's a problem with conception, it's going to be something to do with the woman. And knowing that these, that the numbers are so close, that male factor is a contributing factor, what would you guys recommend? Let's say like a female has gone to get her fertility checked and it turns out she's not the issue and it might be her husband or her partner. What would you, how do, how do you have that conversation with, I mean, I know it's like kind of a, I don't know if you guys, do you guys talk about that with patients ever? Generally, when we, at least at Nashville, when we see a woman, we see her partner as well. Okay, so, so they they're come, both okay. there in front of us and they, you know, everybody hears the same thing. And, you know, I think to Susan's point that she said earlier, it's really just important that we check the sperm count because that's really the best information we have about the partner's fertility. One of the things that we do in Las Vegas is we have a, what we call a, a mini semen analysis appointment where the guys come in and we meet with him, we go through his history, and then he do, does the sperm collection. We do the semen analysis and call him with results as soon as we get them back. And that's a very helpful way for guys to check their fertility. And we have quite a few people who come in from just the community in general to do that. Um, and that also applies to men who aren't partnered or who are partnered with other men, where they just want to know, hey, where where do I stand? Is this something I need to pay attention to? Is this something that I need to consider for future future childbearing? Um, and, and that way they know, okay, you know, I might have a problem, but we make it such a routine part of our discussion that there's not a stigma to it. It's a, you know, this is, this is what we do. This is the way we check your fertility in the same way that this is how you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You just, you got to put one piece together, the other piece together and you're done. Well, that's an interesting analogy. I yeah, like that. Yeah, that was, that was good. You know, and to that end, talking about men coming in for an exam. Sometimes we also see men who are going to have chemotherapy, um, either because they're going to get cancer treatment or men who have some sort of medical condition that requires, you know, low-level chemotherapy, chemotherapeutic agent. And they don't know ultimately if that's going to affect their overall production of sperm. So the other thing we can do for men who are unpartnered is we can actually freeze their sperm and that's their insurance that down the road, potentially when they do have a partner, when they do want to have children, we can use that sperm and, um, and help them create a family that way. 
We also offer that for um, our men who are getting deployed. And if they want to collect sperm before getting sent overseas in case of different exposures and that type of thing, that they can have a backup for when they come home. So when you say different exposures, what what kind of exposures are you referring to? Um, Potential chemical exposures that could happen in other parts of the world, especially in military situations. Or even, you know, pelvic injuries. If they have pelvic injuries, that may Mm -hmm. affect their ability to ejaculate. It may affect their ability to produce sperm. Right. Yeah. Are there any, like, potential for chemical exposures here? Like, what kind of—is there a job that if you're working, you might be at more risk? I would say probably the occupation that I am always the most concerned about when somebody walks into my office is firefighters. Um, firefighters, yeah, the heat. Well, you know, I, the, I, the exposure. I think the it's chemicals. the chemical exposure because chemicals. even though they have their hoods and all of their protective equipment, they're still being exposed to some degree to those volatile compounds of everything that could be burning. And it, it, in our area, it's so prevalent that actually quite a few of the city fire departments have fertility coverage specifically for IVF for their firefighters. Mm-hmm. They don't even have IUI coverage yeah. because they are so used to, and it's such a big problem. And, and it, I think it's a really neat thing amongst the firefighter community because I actually think because it is so common, it's talked about way more than probably other male-dominated fields. Right. Well, and I th- I'm even thinking about like construction jobs. There's certain, you know, chemicals yeah, yeah that you're exposed to. Well, I had kind of a different one when you said that it brought up, I have at least a couple of men who are undertakers and they're exposed to volatile chemicals in the environment, formaldehyde. So embalming fluid is mostly formaldehyde. And so apparently there can be some impact on that as well. And as I found, unfortunately, there's no blood test that you can do to look for formaldehyde exposure. So, you know, kind of things like that you don't think about, but if there's some chemical in the environment, it probably is not good for sperm or egg production, either one. There's the also there's also the consideration of just what medications they're on. Mm-hmm. And so many men don't think about it, but when they're on finasteride for hair growth, when they're on testosterone, like we talked about, some of the calcium channel blockers, which are medications used in blood pressure control, mm-hmm. can decrease the sperm's ability to penetrate the egg. And and so we always do a discussion about medications and see, all right, what can we do? Now this is not giving an incentive to suddenly go off your blood pressure medication, guys. (laughs) So don't do that without your doctor knowing because we don't want you in the emergency room having a stroke from really high blood pressure. Because you listen to this podcast. Because you listen to us. And vascular disease isn't good for sperm production either. So Uh we need to keep the vessels happy. Exactly. (laughs) Uncontrolled diabetes needs to be managed. Uncontrolled blood pressure. All of it needs to be managed because the ability to get an erection is very much dependent on the ability to get blood flow to that part of the body because it is the ability of blood to flow in and then not flow out that allows the penis to become erect and then the ability for it to flow out again, which allows it to become normal resting state, walking around size. And, you know, Carrie, when you spoke about medical illness, you touched upon diabetes. So men that have out of control with diabetes, if just overall their health is not good, sometimes that can impact their sperm numbers. Mm -hmm. But the other thing, for men who chronically have had diabetes for a long time, 
sometimes they can have a condition called retrograde ejaculation, where when they ejaculate, instead of the sperm going out of the penis, it goes back into the bladder. And so if we know that, and and we can kind of work with that and potentially use that sperm that's ejaculated into the bladder to actually use for insemination in the office. But we have to know that that condition exists first. And the way we do that is if we suspect it, if a man says he's had diabetes for a long time or chronic medical illness, then generally what we do is we have them collect the good old-fashioned way through masturbation, but then we also have them urinate afterwards and we check their urine for the sperm. And we can then take that sperm and use it for, you know, intrauterine insemination in their partner. Okay. Well, and something, is there is there anything that a man should look out for aside from his partner not being able to conceive? Are there any signs that something's wrong? Like, is there is there are there any big warning signs that like, oh, I might have something wrong downstairs? So, if he's having problems with erection or ejaculation, okay, if he notices any change in his testicles or maybe um, some prominent veins around his testicles, those are all things that could point to problems. Pain it can also be a sign that that we need to check things out. Okay. And also low volume ejaculate, because that's one of the symptoms that men tend to notice when they have retrograde ejaculation. They notice all of a sudden they don't have as much ejaculate there as they used to have. So so what exactly is the right amount of sperm that a man should have when he ejaculates? Like is it like a teaspoon? A cup? Two cups? I don't know. A what teaspoon is would be a lot and a cup would be scary. <laughs> scary. I mean, like, that would be another issue. That's more importantly, it. stay out of the kitchen, guys. <laughs> it's really more just a trend. If you, you know, are, have seen a certain amount your whole life and all of a sudden that significantly changes, that's when you probably want to talk to somebody. So I guess it would be different for, for every... I mean, generally, the, a normal amount of ejaculate is two milliliters or more. But if you have historically produced a certain amount and you're noticing you're producing a lot less now, that that's really the person that should be inquiring. Okay, gotcha. Well, this has been such an informative episode. We've covered so many different uncomfortable, slightly uncomfortable things for me. For, uh, for the, uh, it's all in a day's work for right, us. You right, know. I know. This is like nothing for you guys. But uh, um, thank you guys so much for, for all this great information. Um, be sure if, if everyone has questions. I think we mentioned this in a another one of our episodes, but you can visit, for Abby, Evelyn, you can visit NashvilleFertility.com. Is that's it, correct. Is yeah, that's right. NashvilleFertility.com. For Susan Hudson, you can visit TXFertility.com. Yes. And then for Carrie Bedient, you can visit FertilityCenterLV.com. I got it right this time. All right. Woohoo! Yay! Right. And good ladies are not going to leave me hanging on the bye this time, right? Nope. No. We got you. We'll see you on the next one. Bye! Bye! Bye.